Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Never a dull moment from yesterday, today with some of these surprises in the language of the Bank of England, and to synthesize it, Across economics and across the equity markets, 1M Darda joins us. Michael Darda with MKM Partners. Thrilled he could be with us uh, this morning. I thought the meeting yesterday, Michael Darda, was absolutely original. I said to Michael McKee as I was walking out of the uh, starship here yesterday, I wonder what Alan Meltzer would have thought of this original policy. How original, how off theory was the Fed yesterday? Thanks for having me, Tom. Well, Powell described what the Fed did was as very powerful for forward guidance. But markets looked at what the Fed did, did uh, as more or less a nothing burger, right? So inflation expectations didn't really move. And the Fed in its forecasts actually didn't predict that it would succeed in average inflation targeting. Nowhere in that forecast is 2% plus inflation. Uh, instead, it's 2% inflation, but only after four years. And so, you know, as you were talking and discussing earlier, you know, some were disappointed in that and, and, and markets didn't really move. The immediate response to, to the Fed is what you want to look at. There were some disappointments with the press conference, but um, I think, you know, uh, the Fed didn't move the needle in, in the way maybe they hoped. Just to drill in, what was the main disappointment, that the Fed didn't come out and say that they're going to buy an indefinite amount of long-term debt? Well, I think it's in the forecast, right? I mean, average in, average inflation targeting means if you've been below two, then you seek to get above two, but nowhere in the Fed's forecast is above 2% inflation. Um, and it's a pretty long horizon. You know, four years to fully recover is not a lost decade, but it's you know certainly not a speedy return to full economic health either. Mike, you've got to say it's absolutely ridiculous to be upset in the last 24 hours. Granted, Chairman Powell's performance wasn't all that in the news conference. November 5th is the next meeting for the Federal Reserve. I understand something happens a couple of days earlier. Mike, surely we've got to understand that the Federal Reserve could not fire all its bullets ahead of the election in America. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that's an argument for sure. And I am encouraged at least that inflation expectations are holding up. They're not sinking. Uh, but the bond market doesn't expect the Fed to get back to 2% inflation really over an indefinite horizon. And so you do have to ask yourself the question, if the Fed is telling us they are not out of ammo, they could do more, but they're not forecasting success, then why are they not changing policy? I think it's a very legitimate question that needs yep. to be asked. That was the question economists were asking in the news conference as well. Mike, forgive me because I've got to do this right now. I've got to turn to cable and get an intraday chart up and look at pound sterling. Pound sterling is falling off a cliff right now. The pound against the US dollar at 128.98, a break of 129 and down by a half of 1%. We mentioned this very briefly just five minutes ago with Bloomberg's Guy Johnson. Governor Bailey has been flirting with negative interest rates. This is a Bank of England now actively preparing to execute negative interest rates. The Bank of England will engage with regulators on how to implement negative interest rates. Mike, I would love your thoughts on negative rates, not just in the UK, but across Europe, Japan, Switzerland. What is your response to these kind of headlines on a morning like this morning? 
Yeah, well, I mean, if the pound is moving down on those expectations, then you would have to characterize it as an expansionary move, right? I mean, I've heard a lot of commentators say that negative rates are contractionary, self-defeating. Uh, but if you signal a policy move and the currency depreciates, that's actually expansionary, uh, all other things equal. It, it, the U.S. doesn't look like it's headed in that direction. Powell has thrown cold water on it, and obviously um, the experience in the Eurozone and Japan have been disappointing, but don't forget that we've had many policy missteps in those regions where central banks tried to get off the zero lower bound prematurely and put business cycles at risk or fortified deflationary pressures. So you don't end up in a zero rate scenario unless things have gone really wrong for a long time beforehand. Mike, great to catch up as always. Michael Dada there of MKM Partners. Right now, Michael Gapin with us with Barclays, our chief U.S. economist. Michael, I want to really get away from Fed policy and talk about where we are in terms of GDP within Q4 and then into 2021. I think we've lost sight of the guessing of what real GDP will be. Good morning, Tom, and thank you for that. So I, I think there's been clear evidence of deceleration in the data this week, right? So we know we all came out of lockdown and things bounced quite strongly, and that gave us solid momentum in, into July. The retail sales data yesterday coming in the core down on the month, I, I think, tell us that there's a lot less momentum as we head into, into Q4. And I know we're all used to every fiscal deadline bringing action, but, you know, Phase four is, you know, it's on life support for sure. Uh, and if we're not getting any additional um, benefits for households and replacement of lost wage and salary income, it, it does look like the pace of improvement is certainly going to going to slow. So somewhere in the low to mid single digits for growth rates in, in Q4 seems to be reasonable, which would be a you know pretty significant deceleration off the roughly 25% that, that consensus is looking for in Q3. So I think it is related to, to two things, the shift where, hey, we've, we've bought all the goods we're gonna buy, and so further growth has to come from services, and we know those are COVID-affected areas, and fiscal stimulus keeps getting pushed out. So those are the two forces, I think, that mean things are really gonna decelerate now and, and as we move into Q4. Michael, it's all about jobs, and as Mike McKee was saying, there is increasing concern that the jobs data is really messy. How much integrity does this data have? It, it still has, I, I would say, some useful integrity. Um, I, I agree with the, the need to downplay any signal from the pandemic uh, numbers. Uh, and even the initial claims data is something that, that we're paying less attention to. Continuing claims still seem to have a pretty good signal uh, to them. So the direction seems to be one of more modest improvement. Uh, look, this is just one of those periods where it's, it's a data point that has lost some of its relevance. Over time, it will become more relevant again. So we, we just downweight some of the signal that that's coming out of it, but we don't ignore it entirely. Michael, you've got your finger on the pulse of the conversation that we had through the summer with pretty much everybody. So many people expected that late summer slowdown. It didn't develop and they capitulated and embraced the idea that what we're seeing is a self-sustaining recovery. Are you saying we're not and what we really need now is more fiscal juice? I, so I think we've been. We, I've tried to be consistent in saying we we do think another round of of assistance for households, like a three to four month, maybe five month kind of period, 
would would be critical in terms of providing a greater bridge and underpinning that virtuous cycle, right? It worked coming out of lockdown because households had resources to spend. Personal income in July was about 7% above where it was in February. Wage and salary income was about 5% below where we were in February. Uh, so it was the federal assistance that was key in helping to underpin that initial rehiring and therefore improvements in production. And I do think a little more to bridge us into year end would be useful. It doesn't mean the economy can't continue to recover without it, but I think it'll be slower and I think it'll be more uneven. Is that what Chairman Powell's waiting for? I, I think so. I mean, I think it sounds to me like he, the message he sent yesterday was we, we've done what we're going to do uh, and, and we've implemented flexible average inflation targeting. We're essentially going to be at zero for the next three to six years. Uh, we'll be buying assets for the foreseeable future. The outlook from here is heavily dependent on fiscal policy and whether or not we get a vaccine. What happens? And we'll have to see how those develop. Well, and of course, the president tweeting out here, vaccines coming very shortly, literally matter of weeks. I believe the science community uh, would beg to disagree uh, with that. Michael Gapin, what if we don't get fiscal policy? What does that do in terms of tenths of a percentage point to anybody's GDP guess? I mean, it's probably more than than tenths of a uh, of a percent. Uh, I, I think at least what most forecasters have been penciling in a, a trillion or more in fiscal stimulus. So those are you, they would be bringing down 2021 growth forecasts fairly fairly markedly. Uh, the vaccine obviously would push things in in the other direction. So uh, we we actually put in just a relatively small phase four package. We put it in in, in, in our forecast in March. It was like 750 billion. At, you know, billions are, are not trillions, of course. Um, and so I, I would say we have less adjusting to do on, on that front. But I think you're talking more percentage points, not tenths of a percent, if, if we're not getting getting phase four spending or something beyond the election for sure. Michael, how worried are you about scarring on the labor market, particularly with younger workers who have some of the highest unemployment rates ever? I would say there at the at the moment I'd say I'm I have mild worry to medium worry. And by that I mean when yes, the unemployment rates come down and the level of unemployment has come down, but underneath that the number of unemployed workers that are being classified as permanently out of work, that number's rising. It's it's a, it was a little over four million in the last employment report. So the bad news is it's rising. The reason I wouldn't say I'm extremely concerned is after 0809, that number was over 8 million. So there is some evidence that scarring in labor markets is happening, but on a relative basis at, at present, it's only about half as bad as we saw uh, after 0809, and, and we'll see where that number goes. No vaccine likely means that number is going to get higher. If we do get a vaccine that's widely available sometime around <clears throat> the middle of next year, that should limit the degree of labor market scarring. Michael Gapen, always love catching up with you. Generous Michael, with your time this morning, and we appreciate it. Michael, thank you. Michael Gapen there of Barclays. You can go back to a girl who showed up. I mean, literally showed up in New York and said, hello, I'm here. 
when she was 18 years old. She stopped traffic years ago with a T-shirt on The Tonight Show, and that launched Rebecca Minkoff off to purses and the rest. She joins us now on the state of her collapsing fashion industry. Rebecca Minkoff, wonderful to have you with us. How are you going to make it to the other side? You've been resilient more than anybody I know. How do you get to 2022? I think we get that uh, we get there by being resilient, by being innovative, and you know you really get to go back and flex your entrepreneurial skills. This is the test for any entrepreneur: can you do it? You cannot rest on your laurels right now. And my co-founder and I have done nothing short of a miracle by keeping our company together. I can't imagine when you first walked into Robert Burke's Bergdorf Goodman and saw your product on the second floor or the fifth floor or whatever. In two or three years, are people like you going to have product in department stores or are they done? You know, we're not done. Um, Obviously, the pandemic has changed everything and overnight, 70% of our business was shut down due due to the pandemic. But we're seeing a resurgence. These stores are coming back. It's going to be slower. It's going to be different. The relationship will certainly change, but um, we're getting requests for orders that currently we can't fill from these stores. Where are these stores? Are they in big cities or is the location changing? You know, we've had requests from our past uh, stores, whether it's the Nordstrom's opening back up or, you know, the slow sort of as these cities get allowances, um, they are in the bigger cities. And I don't know that you'll see a huge resurgence with department stores in smaller cities. But we are seeing that specialty stores that are allowed to reopen are also requesting product. And because of that, we're actually able to bring back certain staff that were wholesale related only because we can't uh, service these clients as well as we need. And so we're bringing back staff we had furloughed in order to service those clients. Rebecca, how do you compete with sweatpants in an era of working from home? Here's the beautiful thing. We have a really popular Janine sweatshirt that we've had for several months that we cannot keep in stock. It has the perfect Zoom shoulder. And now we're getting her in a sweatsuit coming this holiday season. You're going to get her in velour. You get her in a hoodie. You get her in a dress. So we are listening to our customer and we're giving her fashion, but a very, very comfortable way. Uh, Rebecca, I want you to talk about how you got to branch out. You've done a great job of that. I mean, it was one story a person. You've gone so far beyond that. I mean, Lisa Abramowitz needs little Minkoff. There's no question <laughs> about that. But, you know, the, the creative survival, where is all that product discrimination going? What's your vision of how you're going to parse brands over the next 24 months? So I think that we're seeing, and it needed to happen, a complete fashion reset. I think we were all on a hamster wheel. We were designing too much product. We were clogged with inventory. So one of the things we did with launching Little Minkoff is partner with a platform called Resonance. It's inventory-less, 95% biodegradable, and made with earth-friendly chemicals. And there's almost zero waste because they literally print the pattern on the fabric and cut around it. And we're expanding that to women's because we see that a woman is actually becoming more conscious about waste, about fast fashion, and it's um, harm to the environment and workers. And so we're embracing that and fully utilizing everything we can to grow that segment. Um, It's called RM Green, but with an E after our store on Green Street. And so that launches in the next few weeks, um, in addition to the Little Minkoff, which is already there. Rebecca, as an entrepreneur and as a mentor to a lot of entrepreneurs, is Amazon the enemy? You know, today, uh, you know, there is a big divide, many divides, actually. But I think that right now we're selling on Amazon. 
when our entire business, you know, uh, with the exception of our own site went offline, we needed to be able to find partners that were nimble and quick and would work with us. And so we've had an incredible partnership. And I think as long as you can set those rules and they are followed, then they're a fantastic place to be. Uh, Rebecca, I look at the tax structure that you have to deal with. You've got politicians looking for the rich people buying fancy Rebecca Minkoff stuff to crush them in New Jersey and other states as well. What kind of support do you need from fiscally beleaguered politicians? I think they need to turn their fight elsewhere. They should probably worry more about equality. They should probably worry more about, you know, making sure that people who are not with jobs and who need more financial help get that support. You know, we elect these politicians and they should be worrying about the people that need help the most versus, you know, crushing businesses that are trying to survive and really contribute to the economy. Very good. Rebecca Minkoff, too short a visit. This is a joy as we had Joyce Chang with us of J.P. Morgan in the last hour. Ian Bremmer joins us now with Eurasia Group. And somebody asked me yesterday, are you doing that New Year's kickoff? And I'm thrilled to say we're, we're planning that right now with the wonderful people at uh, Eurasia Group. Ian Bremmer, a new book scheduled uh, here. Maybe it will adapt and adjust to the presidential election. Let's start with Ian Bremmer on our international relations and our next president. Ian, what do second term presidents do on international relations. If President Trump takes the trophy this time, how do presidents adapt in a second term? Well, I mean, I think one thing to say uh, is that um, when you have a change in president and a change in party, the idea that foreign policy is going to be dramatically different is usually oversold by the analyst. There's usually more continuity. There's usually more constraint. Um, In the case of Trump, of course, so much of what he focuses on is brand building and is electioneering that the dangerous period for U.S. foreign policy is much more in the run up um, to November and perhaps right after uh, when votes are still being counted and we don't have a solution uh, than what happens after January. Uh, for me, the uh, the foreign policy differences for Trump, if he gets a second term, um, have more to do uh, with uh, the constraints on his ability to run if the election itself is seen as illegitimate by half of the country. And I, I think, frankly, we're in that situation no matter who wins coming up in November. So there's a lot that's unprecedented here, but it doesn't have as much to do with second term or not. It has uh, more to do with the nature of this election, the nature of this backdrop, um, and, and the nature of President Trump himself. There is a derby for the Nobel Peace Prize centered around our foreign policy with the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Sea, or whatever you want to call it, Ian, depending on which side of the shore you're on. Mr. Netanyahu is involved in that as well. Does our president deserve the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, I mean, if you want me to say something uh, really uh, controversial, I can say he deserves one more than Obama did at the time that Obama received it. Of course, that was a symbolic uh, prize. At that point, it was a hopeful prize. It was aspirational and it was overtly political, which is why everyone thought it was kind of a mistake, sort of including Obama himself at the time. Uh, of course, uh, Trump's had a lot of uh, foreign policy missteps on his uh, on his watch. 
but he's also had some successes. And I'll tell you, nothing will drive out the trolls more than when I give the president credit um, for things he's done on foreign policy when he's gotten it right. And one of those things has been uh, normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE, Israel um, and Bahrain. Uh, you know, we uh, every pre- this president for decades now has tried to cut their teeth in the Middle East on being an honest broker between Israel and the Palestinians. We're not an honest broker. Israel is our best ally in the region, and the Palestinians, we have at best poor relations. Um, that, that Band-Aid has been ripped off. Uh, our best relations are with the Israelis and the Gulf monarchies, and Trump embraced that from day one. He made that the first trip he made outside the U.S. as president, first to Riyadh and then to Israel, went very well. And, and meanwhile, our biggest adversary in the region is Iran. And we share that adversary with the Israelis in the Gulf states. So the fact that you've had an administration that's not been, in a sense, constrained by or burdened by American history in the region uh, made it much more possible to affect this breakthrough. And it's a real breakthrough. And by the way, if Biden wins, it's actually going to be, there's a shot that he could actually move on Israeli-Palestinian peace because of what Trump has done here. Because it's now obvious to the Palestinians that they actually don't have friends in the region. So they're under a lot more pressure to get something done than they were before. What are the chances, Ian, that, that Joe Biden wins? Um, I would say today, I think they're about 65, 35, uh, but it's tightening over the next seven weeks. I suspect that we'll get closer than that. I've got high confidence uh, that the U.S. economy continues to improve. I've got moderate confidence that numbers around coronavirus cases and hospitalizations and deaths will continue to flatten somewhat. And I've got moderate confidence that uh, social instability and violence Um, in overwhelmingly blue urban centers in the U.S. will continue to increase. All three of those at the margins helps Trump in a race where the overwhelming majority of Americans have already decided how they're going to vote. So it's going to be close. Uh, But I think more importantly, I think it is almost certain that it's going to be contested. We're not going to find out who has won the election on the day. And President Trump uh, will probably have announced that he's won and how we deal with that it's going to be a lot more challenging than Bush Gore in 2000. Let's put it that way. But Ian, is is there something that Joe Joe Biden can do to get ahead in the polls, or is there something that you know President Trump can do, or or no matter what, is it going to be close? Well, this election is going to be overwhelmingly a referendum on Trump. Biden is not offensive to most Americans, but they don't have the same level of enthusiasm. You're not going to get boat parades out there for Biden the way you do for Trump. Having said that, Trump's support base is narrower than Biden's. What do you do in that environment? I mean, you know, it's almost impossible for Biden to make it about him um, unless he makes really significant gaps. I think his choice of running mate Kamala Harris uh, was a very smart one. Um, It won some votes, Indian Americans, for example, um, and it also helped them with some independence in a way that others that were being considered would not have. So that was a win. I worry about the debates. Um, it, you know, you, tr- tr- I think Biden has to get, um, he, can't, he can't try to hit Trump one for one. He has to play the character card. He has to talk 
directly to the American people. He has to sort of, with Trump, say, oh, there you go again, Donald. There has to be this subtext of this is insane and I'm the real presidential character. But he also has to come across as strong and as capable uh, because, you know, we all know that if Biden looks like he's missing a step or two, that's a vulnerability for him. And the Republicans are doing a better job going after and playing dirty than Project Lincoln and the Democrats are against Trump. That's just a reality. Ian, we've got so much more to talk about. I want to ask you one question. I want you to play domestic political guy here. I was standing four years ago watching a TV at 10-something p.m. when I realized President Trump was going to win. And he won in the suburbs of Philadelphia and the other suburbs across this nation. What are those suburbs going to do? What is your sense, as an outsider to the domestic political game, what is your sense of what the vaunted suburbs are going to do? Yeah, I suspect they're going to swing a little bit more for Biden. But let's be clear, Republicans in those suburbs are more concerned about law and order. Democrats in those suburbs are more concerned about the pandemic. Republicans in those suburbs are overwhelmingly going to vote in person on the day. Democrats in those suburbs are going to vote overwhelmingly by mail. Uh, The pandemic matters here. And the fact that the president has decided, with a lot of help from the attorney general, that voting by mail is illegitimate. And so you shouldn't count those votes. Those votes are going to be stolen. Those votes are going to be rigged. That's enormously important. And what plays out in the two weeks after Election Day in terms of those ballots is really much more about what we're going to play for than than just uh, how the members of those suburbs uh, end up deciding themselves. This is this is an election, Tom, uh, Francine, where afterwards, I think almost no matter how it plays out, unless it's a landslide, I don't think it's going to be a landslide. I think a decent piece of the American public is going to believe that the election is unfree and unfair. And by the way, I think there's a decent chance that will indeed turn out to be the case. I've never said that in a U.S. election before. I'll say that about elections in developing countries. I'll say that about authoritarian states. Never said about the United States before. It's going to be a very ugly few months. There's no question about that. All right, Ian, thanks so much. Ian Bremmer there of Eurasia with some uh, pretty strong words. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.